Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda, Talk 14 by Asha Praver, May 29, 2012, copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Paramhansa Yogananda, Saints of all religions, humbly we bow to you all. Come into us. Help us to know that you are always with us, guiding us and blessing us. Help us to improve our receptivity that we may live by your grace alone. Om, peace, amen. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. I will never forget thee, I will never forsake thee, I will never forget thee, I will never forsake thee. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. I will never forget thee, I will never forsake thee. I will never forget thee, I will never forsake thee. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. I will never forget thee, I will never forsake thee, I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. 
Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. I will never forget thee. I will never forsake thee. Hello, great souls. So, here we are again. We are on number 30, and there are 32. So, we will do it. Amazing. Okay, any comments or questions before we begin? Lisa's actually changed seats. So is Saiganesha. Some friend of mine who ran seminars said he always paid attention to whoever would change seats between the morning and the afternoon session. <laughs> and now it's getting to be from class to class. Everybody has their own seats. I have no idea what the significance of that is, but I myself get used to everybody being in a certain spot. And I feel slightly disconcerted when you all shoot. I, I have what I learned as a right brain memory, which is I can remember <clears throat> what people said if I can picture where they were sitting. You know, I like, no, no, it's all right. Now I'm adjusted to you there, Lisa, and it would just be even more concerning. That's all right. I like it. I like it. Oh, this is the new one. No, and the, there's no wheels on it. Whoa. Oh, that's the new one. That's very nice. Oh, really nifty. Okay. The way you were sliding it, or somebody was sliding it on Sunday, they made it seem effortless. Oh, it has gliders. Okay. All right, let's get back to business here. <laughs> okay, nobody has anything to contribute but me, utterly trivial observations. Number 30, Yogananda. Yogananda had an amazing ability to speak insightfully on any subject. When doctors were present, he could speak with them using even their own specialized terminology. No matter what the subject, in fact, his ability to tune in to the consciousness of others made it possible for him to know everything they knew. Isn't that amazing? The gift was, this gift was particularly evident in his ability to know um, every trend in religious history without having studied that era. He was no scholar, but somehow he knew all about the history of Christianity, the special mission of Buddha, of Shankar, the special missions of Buddha, of Shankaracharya, of Ramanuja, of Chaitanya, and he made clear his own place in the progression, equally without having studied it, 
He understood the whole history of Christian schisms, sects, movements, and counter-movements. I myself had studied Christian history and was amazed at his insight into all of it. Isn't that amazing? You know, um, some, I don't know, did anyone here go to the Yugas conference this weekend at Ananda Village? No. Um, they had a conference this weekend that Purushottam and Vyasa put together based on the subject of the Yugas, and I wasn't there either, but I heard from many people that it was really fascinating, and I'm sure the talks would be worth listening to. What I was going to just mention in that context is even those of us who have studied uh, what Yogananda wrote and Sri Yukteswar wrote about the yugas, about history actually being cyclical instead of linear, and that our being in a constant movement of either upward expanding consciousness on the planet or declining, and that you know, right now we have hit the nadir and we're on the way up um, into the beginning of the second age. Um, nonetheless, let me, let me just find the point I was going to make there. Oh, yes. Nonetheless, the um, indoctrination to think about the past being primitive and us being, you know, the, that we've been on a steady ascending climb, um, a steady ascending path, and that nothing behind us can be wiser than we are. It's just sort of like a hypnosis that's just in your mind, and a lot of times you think about that. Um, it's really, really gruesome to think that we're the apex of all of human development, and it's extremely comforting to realize that we're not. That was one of the nicer things that I realized when I got began to get this theory. But uh, a number of years ago, there was this man uh, who's passed away now. His name is Marcel Vogel. And he sort of well, was well-known, is slightly well-known still in the New Thought movement. Um, he developed, he worked a lot with crystals. He actually was hired by IBM just to think. They put him on a salary, and his job was to think, and anything that he invented, they owned. So he made a deal with them. And so he was like their resident genius. And I think he did come up with a lot of ideas that made it fruitful on both sides. He had the security of never having to think about money, and they had the security of benefiting from his insights. But he, uh, he was a friend of Swamiji's, and just fun about him. He was a real character, as you might imagine. That could give you a brief description of what he was like. And his wife, almost by extreme contrast, was, was a real, just absolutely down-to-earth, you know, just never really paid attention to all the weird things he was doing, just completely solid. And he, of course, was very grateful to her because I think she made his life possible. But we, he was at Swamiji's house for lunch. This was in the 70s. They became friends somewhere along the way. And his wife, whose name I don't remember, was there with Marcel. And Marcel was going to show us how he could bend spoons with his mind. And his wife kept saying, Marcel, what are they going to do with the spoon after you bend it? Leave it alone. <laughs> it's a match set. Just leave it alone. <laughs> I just remember, she was not impressed. It just amused him so much, her whole attitude. But now, to go back to what I was really going to say. Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did it. And now let me think. I recall that he bent it. She was quite upset about it. Yeah, that's my recollection. He, I mean, he really had, he was something else. He, he just, he looked the part. He had kind of big eyes and a really big head, slightly wild hair. You know, if you'd kind of like 
sent to central casting, send me a slightly loony, you know, good-hearted, but a little nutty mad scientist. You would have gotten him. He was wonderful. Um, but he was telling us the story and I, that in, in various, in a couple of places, they uncovered these crystals, these, these uh, pieces of crystal that were carved to look like a human skull. And they're, they're artifacts that people don't quite know what to do with. And he was telling us that he had a vision holding that skull in which he believed he saw how it was actually used. And what he described to us was a much higher civilization than this one in which knowledge was transmitted directly instead of this long, arduous process where we have to sit and be taught things. It was possible for, for, for whole you know, volumes of information just to be transferred. And he talked about a ceremony in which an elderly, erudite person came into a certain temple and the contents of their consciousness was transferred into the skull. And then the contents was transferred from the skull into the, light, into the consciousness of a young person. And in that way, you know, traditions were passed on and knowledge was shared. Well, this is what Master is talking about. Master had the capacity to know what everybody else around him knew. Why would you not be able to? I mean, on one hand, it's like if consciousness is unified, why would you not be able to just meld your consciousness with anyone's mind and, and be at one with, their, with what they know? I mean, thoughts are universal. I was thinking about this in another way. Um, Dana Anderson, Dana Lynn Anderson, who's a wonderful visual artist and also talented in um, theater and other artistic expressions as well, and has a passion not only for doing, but also for teaching and awakening others. She lives mostly in Italy now, and they've started something called the Academy of Conscious Art or something like that. Being also an extremely intellectually gifted person, She's written what she calls a manifesto for the Academy. <laughs> it's like a manifesto for the Academy of Arts that she's, they're starting there. I mean, think big. I wrote her back, you know, go girl, <laughs> think big. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but she wrote in there just a very obvious statement. And it's all about both the potential, the spiritual potential of art and the responsibility of artists to be instruments for the right kind of consciousness. It's really, I mean, it's very, very, very inspiring. You can look up her name or Academy of the Arts, maybe, and find it. Anyway, um, now, coming through all of this, she refers, she talks about, she was the, the image which I've heard before, but somehow it triggered an understanding in me about a powerful radio can find the programs that are being broadcast even from all over the world if it's strong enough. And then suddenly that instrument will be expressing, you know, phenomenal art or, or great scientific insight or, um, you know, magnetic personality. All sorts of things can come through that radio. And in another context, Swamiji talked about how um, some more erudite, more worldly young man uh, made fun of his grandmother who would listen every week to a Gita on the, a discourse on the Gita through her radio and then in gratitude she would burn incense and put flowers on the radio. <laughs> and Swamiji was saying even though uh, on one hand it was a little naive, on the other hand the, the radio was the instrument through which she received this and she was just expressing gratitude. But Dana was writing about, in truth, 
there's nothing either gifted particularly significant about the radio. It simply has the capacity to tune in and then it has a limitless ability to express. Well, it, it just finally clicked into my mind what that's really about. That Swami Kriyananda has a very good example and he's always telling us this. He's always just explaining to us how easy it is to be creative and how easy it is to be prodigiously creative as he is. How easy it is to write a book in a week, you know, if you really have to do it. Because there is no real difference in truth between our consciousness and the radio. It's simply out there to be understood and expressed and we simply have to attune ourselves to it and then there's a limitless uh, flow of creative energy um, it, which is the, the, the quality and the quantity is dependent entirely on the power of our, our radio receiver and our commitment and the lack of distractions and I, I just was sort of trying to really feel that from our personal point of view. And it's not just a question of creative art. It's, it's, it's wisdom. It's intuitive response. It's knowing you know, how we should behave in certain circumstances. It's accepting and understanding what people need from us, you know, where our best interest lies, where our happiness lies. And of course... You know, I remember tuning in. We used to have one of those really big, wonderfully old-fashioned radios that was it was already old-fashioned when I was a child, but still it was marvelous. And it was big like a chest of drawers, and it had the, this beautiful dial. And I just remember as a child spinning that dial, not even for listening, but just for the fun of watching the dial go back and forth. But when you would do that, you would go, crackle, 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 and then the voice would come in clear, and then you'd move, and it would crackle, crackle, crackle again. Well, we're crackling all the time. We're crackling with, oh, I'm not sure I can do it. I'm a little bit tired. I'm hungry now. I'm not really sure I want to work on this anymore. I've been at it for a while. Why isn't it finished? This isn't very good. I mean, all the different things that we could be thinking about. What about me? You know, no one ever really thinks about me. Why should I be thinking about this other person? And in the meantime, that energy is trying to come through, but we have all the conflicting cross-currents of our own ego and the likes and dislikes of the heart. And it both interrupts um, the, that, the clear transmission, re- receiving and transmission of that signal. And um, it also, let me just, I was going to say, it interrupts it and it distorts it. You know, it just makes it so that when, even when it comes, we can't, we can't quite tell what we've received. And by the time it gets through all that crackle, you know, what was he talking about? Was he talking about the price of potatoes or was it an earthquake in Europe? You know, you're just not really quite sure what was said. Just this evening I got an, uh, it was a, a voicemail message from someone and it was just, there she was, but there was all this crackle around her and I just couldn't quite get what she was trying to tell me. I could tell that she was there, but that's what happens to us a lot, isn't it? But of course you see a master or an advanced soul like Swamiji, they don't have all those conflicting cross-currents. They have one thought, and that's how can I serve? And, and that, with Swami Kriyananda, has been the single guiding principle of his entire life. And he had a conversation, um, which I recorded in my book, of, with a young man who had some talent as a musician, but less talent as a songwriter, but um, felt this desire to write songs, 
Swamiji did not want him to write songs. He thought if he um, got more in tune, and he, he, as Swamiji said, he was put in the awkward position of saying, instead of singing your own songs, you should sing the songs I've written, which Swamiji said was a little hard for him to emphasize with the strength that he wanted to emphasize it. You should just sing the music I've written, and then later you'll be able to really write your own songs. But if you stop now and start writing your own songs, you'll never become really original. That was the phrase Swami was using with him. He said, what you're doing is imitative. You need to get more in tune and original meaning with your own point of origin. And then what comes out of you will actually be original. Right now, you're not in possession of your own self sufficiently. So he wrote songs that were imitative. They sounded like all the other popular songs around. They weren't terrible, but um, they basically the sands of time have washed over them. Even in the Ananda repertoire, they never stuck because they just didn't have that kind of clarity. Um, but the man was defending himself by saying to Swamiji, well, sir, you know how it is. You're a creative person. Sometimes you just have to write a song. And Swami answered, says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Just like that. He said, I never do anything creative because I have to do it. He said, I do it because I say to Master, how can I serve? Everything I do is as service. And if he wants me to write a song, I'll write a song. If he wants me to write a book, I'll write a book. If I never do another creative thing in my life, he said, it's all the same to me. Now, that may not necessarily be the level of consciousness where all of us live. But it's very appropriate for us to try to understand what that is and to measure ourselves toward that. In one context years ago, um, we were having a... um, We have, as you all know, we have the sadhaka order and the sevaka order within our our sangha here. Sevaka order is considered... We used to call one the monastic order and the other the lay order, and then we came up with sadhaka and sevaka. The difference being the sevakas being those who have the karmic freedom essentially to join the army and accept orders because there's no um, compelling dharmas that would prevent you from doing that. And that we always are trying to emphasize it's not necessarily a question of spiritual sincerity, it's just the karmic conditions you're living under. And so sadhakas then often have other realities and it's often defined by the fact that sadhikas, for the most part, don't live in the community and sevakas do. Because there will be husband, wife, job, children, financial obligations, any number of things. But in any case, <laughs> even people who've been with Ananda for decades are saying, the sadhikas, the sevakas, the lay, the monastic, what does all that mean? Even people who ought to know are asking the question over and over and over and again. Because it's a little bit of a false distinction. So anyway, Swamiji was giving satsangs. This was when he was visiting us, and he, those were years ago, and he would often do more programs when he came through. He did one program for the sevakas and one for the sadhikas during the time he was there, the monastic and the lay order at the time. So when we were about to go to the, to the satsang for the lay order, he said to me, what would you like me to talk about? I said, well, Swamiji, people don't really quite understand as members of the lay order how they can be dedicated to God and you know, the second-class citizen kind of issue. How do we work with this? So he sat down and he gave a satsang, and he started out in the satsang by talking, and he spent most of the satsang talking about his own absolute state of renunciation, just absolute. And he told the story of 
having been a monk in SRF and having surrendered absolutely everything to God, living on this small um, stipend that was given to him and just how free he felt and how how much he loved it, how he lived that way for 14 years and then he was expelled from SRF. And he was virtually penniless. He ended up with a few hundred dollars. He drove in the backseat of his parents' car from New York City back to San Francisco. He hadn't lived at home since he was 22. Now he was 36. He finds himself living in the back bedroom of his parents' house, being supported by them. Um, And it was not an easy time for him. But then he began to teach again. He was compelled, and you've read the story probably in some of his books. And he started using his parents' car and borrowing cars and so on. And his father finally decided, you know, you really need to have a car and offered to give him, wanted him to take possession of the parents' car that he was using. So Swamiji talks to us in the satsang and he's saying to us, he said, I can't begin to communicate to you how devastated I was at the thought that I would have to own that car. And he said, I, you know, I'd renounced everything for God and now I was going to have to own a car. And he said again, I don't think any of you can even imagine um, how unhappy that made me. And so then he just said, but eventually he just realized that this was the position God was putting him in and if he was going to use the car all the time and so on, he just had to accept it. So then he sort of finished up the satsang. Then he turns to me in this crowd of 60 people or so and said, well, is there anything else that you want me to talk about? And since he had given no indication of remembering what I said, I said, well, maybe, sir, you could talk a little about what the, <laughs> what the lay order is. He sort of looked at me and said, that's all I have been talking about. And then he turned to that group, and this is what he said. Don't even think about trying to live the way I live. He said, just find what is appropriate to you and be content in that. It was just like, you know, there are levels of reality that we have to balance between our aspirations and our presumption. And it's a very sensitive line. In fact, this morning uh, we were having some discussion at our house about that very subject and Karen Gamow sent me an email later reminding me of an exchange she'd had with Swamiji, which I hadn't known anything about. He was talking and telling a story. Um, I, I'm guessing which one it might have been. He talked about the time when they were soliciting support for various things that were needed in the village, and one of the items was $3,000 to repair a certain part of the road. And it was a very, very, $3,000 at that time in our community was just a stunningly large sum of money. That was the time, I believe, when my salary was $50 a month. And that was all I got. And that wasn't just like plus, you know, it was just, that was what it was. Um, so Swamiji looked at that $3,000, and even for him it was a lot of money. And he said, ooh, who could afford that? And then he thought, well, who could afford that? And he decided he probably was the only one who had the magnetism to commit to that. So without any idea where the money would come from and without having it at all, he committed to it. And then a couple of days later, he received a check in the mail for $3,000. That was the nature of the story. So in other words, he committed and spent money before he had it. So Karen apparently said to Swamiji, well, sir, should, should we do that? Should we commit money before we have it? He said, oh, heavens no, you'd go broke in no time. <laughs> Which was a very interesting answer, you know. 
so the the balancing point in fact i have to i have to write a, a one of my ask asha questions recently and um i i was it's a it's a complex question you'll recognize this when the letter finally comes out but i was realizing that the the essence of our spiritual path which is one of the things that makes it so dynamic is that it's not based on blind belief it's not based on dogma it's not based on in- institutions it's not based on priestly promises or you know priestly intercession in your life your spiritual path is entirely in your own hands master said the only place that god can be realized is in your own nervous system which is such a strange remark but a fascinating one when you contemplate it so it's really about experience so it's required of us that we pay attention to our experience and that we have faith in our own experience but the other side of that is we're idiots we don't know anything and so simultaneously we have to rely completely on our experience and we have to recognize that our experience is is nothing compared to our potential and and it's a among the the many razor's edges that we walk that's another one that we have to walk and what it comes down to as far as i can figure it out is that we have to stand comfortably wherever we stand and never for one moment imagine that the mountain top is any lower than it actually is because you see there's this temptation to claim our experience as being the totality of experience or 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 just not having the courage actually to understand what the gap is between where we are and where we will someday be swamiji tells a story about being in india maybe perhaps in darjeeling but somewhere up where you could see the himalayas and i think it was nanital i think that's the name of one of the high himalayas there and he said the whole time he was visiting it was under a cloud and everybody kept you know hoping it would come out before he left so he would be able to see the mountain and it was a, a it's a very high mountain if that's not the right name it's one of the really high peaks and finally he said he was sitting in a car and he was meditating i don't know all the details but he had his eyes closed and then he heard everybody say oh look the mountain the mountain first he had to face the temptation to break his meditation and open his eyes which was something he had to work out but eventually he did open his eyes and he looked for the mountain and he just looked and looked and he just couldn't see it anywhere even though he was so excited because he just didn't even imagine how high he had to look in order to see the top of the mountain and then suddenly he raised his eyes way beyond what had it occurred to him to look and there just towering over him was this himalayan peak so on in our spiritual lives we hear swami ji talk about you know his effortless creativity and the reason he can do so much is because he does nothing and we hear about master here who could just be with people and the totality of their knowledge was in his consciousness and we have to recognize the fact that that's where we're going and that's the method by which we will get there now we probably have to read a lot more of church history to understand it but even as we act according to the necessity of our own experience because it would be presumptuous for us to you know go into the college exam without reading the books just because master could do that but it also would be unfortunate of us 
to always say, well, I can't do that, that's not me. Because it will be. It's just as simple as that, it will be. I had a fascinating experience when I very first started lecturing, when Shivani and I, Shivani's coming on Sunday, when the first, not the, the first, but one of the first really big lecture tours I went out on, Shivani and I went together, because both of us were utterly new to this, and we felt more confident in each other's company, and we split the program. And she was very knowledgeable. She'd made a big study her whole life, starting then, of master's healing techniques. And, you know, that kind of healing was very popular. So she had a whole, um, uh, whatever the word is, program of classes about healing. And I had never paid any attention to that subject because Shivani was so interested in it. There was no point in duplicating the effort. And I had a whole program of other classes. And we, in the same cities, we would alternate pretty much. Well, the whole tour was, I think, six weeks long. We made very long trips at that point. And about a week into it, maybe two weeks into it, Shivani's husband, Arjuna, who at that time was running a construction company, had a big contract. I think he was building a temple for some group in Santa Cruz. And everything on the contract started just going to pieces. It was just a terrible mess and a potential economic nightmare. And... Um, Arjuna asked, or Shivani volunteered, to leave the Northwest where we were, go, go there and just help him sort through all the things that were happening. It wasn't his incompetence, it was the chaos of the client. So she pulled out of the lecture tour, just like that, and all of a sudden I had all these weeks of lectures and all of mine and hers to cover. Um, on a subject I didn't know that much about. And she sort of left me her notes, but her, her mind just didn't work the way mine did, or my mind didn't work the way hers did, and I could hardly understand any of her notes, and I certainly couldn't get any intuition from them. And I wasn't entirely ignorant on the subject, but I really didn't know very much. But it was fascinating to me, the first program we had to give, which I believe was in Longview, Washington, in this little room that I can remember. And uh, I was... Already, I mean, I had more notes when I would speak than or I would study more, but still I, was, I would go in an intuitive flow. I didn't have a lot of notes because I never studied this subject, so I didn't have notes. But I stood there and gave this talk to a group of about 30. <clears throat> and I watched the fascinating balance between intuition and, um, and the groundwork you have to do to have intuition. Um, because... I would start down a certain track of thinking and I could feel the energy of the room pulling me in certain directions. I, I, I wouldn't say that I could read their minds, but I could sense, these are things that go on without my thinking about it much now, I could sense that this was a, an area of interest or an area of need, but I couldn't go very far down that road because I ran out of information. I ran out of knowledge. And even though I would try to have intuition... I could feel myself crossing over into presumption. You know, that if I really just kept talking, I was no longer on solid ground. I'd reached the limits of my actual consciousness to be able to either understand or draw the subject. And I would sort of have to say a mental sorry and just move over into an area perhaps of less interest to them, but one that I had a longer road that I could go down. Very interesting, isn't it? Now, Swamiji says he could put his mind when he was, for example, writing a book about astrology and he didn't know anything about astrology, he'd never studied there or not much, he could put his mind to it and he would have understandings he didn't have before. And at this point in my spiritual life, I can often 
um, understand something that I, I don't know why I understand it. But it's because I have done so much groundwork. It's like things will come together in a moment, even what I'm talking about, about the radio. And it might not sound like much to you, but the picture that I suddenly saw was a very different picture than the one I'd ever seen before. But it's the result of doing what we can on the level that we're on. And we do what we can on the level that we're on. In fact, I just read in the first pages of Swamiji's commentary on the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, um, I think after, after all of us are just dust in the ground and, and forgotten, maybe even after all of Swami's work is forgotten, that book is still going to be living. That is really a scripture for all times. It's going to be like you know, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. No one will ever forget that book. But one of the things he talks about, which is so interesting, he talks about the transforming power of the guru connecting with us at the vibration of the spiritual eye and that all of spiritual practice is the effort to put our consciousness at the spiritual eye so that the guru can reach us and that we don't actually change ourselves at all. We just simply put ourselves in tune and then the guru changes us. That's very interesting, isn't it? So in the light of Master's ability to understand things that he didn't know anything about, he was demonstrating our potential. We always have to remember that. It's a very um, amazing balance point between this complete reverence and this sort of comfortable realization that he's not fundamentally different from us at a different stage of development, but not fundamentally different from us. I was talking to Swamiji recently about certain um, sort of psychic readings that had been offered, and we were both expressing doubt in them because um, the person was inclined to tell everybody who came to them that this was their last life and they were going to have moksha in this incarnation and so on. And uh, Swamiji, when we were discussing this, he sort of looked at me and I said, Swamiji, you know, my point on that is moksha looks like you. It doesn't look like me, <laughs> you know? And as long as I can see you and see me and see the difference, I'm not really thinking about moksha. Yes, we'll get there eventually, but this is what your last life looks like. And unless I see that somewhere else, I'm disinclined to believe that that's where they are. Nonetheless, we were just talking earlier before class started that I think Haridas was the one who told me this. That I think he was quoting Master on this. That Master said, if all of your incarnations, and I was asked earlier if that means all your human incarnations or all your animal incarnations, I don't know. But if all of your incarnations were the equivalent of a 24-hour clock, I actually said that we are now in the last few minutes of that 24-hour clock. But I think he actually said we're in the last few seconds. Compared to where we've been, So this life, next life, a few lifetimes from now, compared to where we've been, we're standing at the very end of the cycle, which means that all of those potentials of of, of perfected human consciousness are not that far away from us. And And the end of it is we just do our best and try to use the principles and see what happens. I can't, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I'll tell you because it may hearten some of you. 
when I've been struggling with writing at different times and I couldn't figure out what to say, it would occur to me, why don't you ask Master to guide you? And I would stop and I would say, okay, Master, what do you want to say? Almost invariably, just there it would be. You know, it would be because I would forget that principle that I would start having trouble, of course. But just, you come back, you center yourself, you tune your radio, and then there is no limit to what can come through you. When I was struggling to write the book about Swami a few years ago, and I just was talking to Swami about my this and that, I mean, it was oh, such a dramatic and pathetic scene. But anyway, he said to me, hmm, I never have writer's block. <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting. But he never has writer's block because he's not the writer. He doesn't think about being the writer. He just says, all right, Master, what do you want to say? When he wrote, he wrote the Gita book, just speaking of the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, he wrote that book in two months. He wrote that book in India in two months while he was having a steady stream of house guests and visitors, mostly from America. I mean, I was there for part of it. And just in the midst of all these other things that were going on, he just churned right through that book. Then took another few weeks to edit it and zip. I mean, that book, a person could spend 10 years of their life writing it. But he just asked for it. And there it is. He thought he would. He, thought he, would. he was amazed, in, in fact. But you can see when you think about it like this, why would it be difficult? You see, the aberration is that it would be difficult, not that it would be easy. Yes, concentration and effort is required. That radio has to be powerful. It's not like we don't just fall asleep and have these things happen. Then the art is subconscious. But when we can hold ourselves in superconsciousness, just speaking of art the way Swami put it, he said many people get a superconscious inspiration but don't have the energy to hold on to it. So he often remarks that many um, popular songs, and he, Swami has said that you know popular music has more heart now than most classical music, so... Some of the most beautiful melodies are in popular songs. Many popular songs have one beautiful phrase and then the rest of it doesn't measure up. But because of that one line, it has enough feeling in it that will make the whole thing work. Because whoever wrote it caught that one phrase but then just didn't know how to keep the inspiration, didn't have the concentration, the energy, or the understanding, any of the above, to be able to hold on to it. So, very interesting. And here's our master's example. He knew things without knowing them. Because they were there to be known, why could he not know them? Interesting, isn't it? Okay, any other questions or thoughts? You know, there's... Yeah, go ahead. I'm not sure which book, but uh, Autobiography of Yogi, that actually Yateshwa tells his master not to read books because he can go into the universal library and get everything. Uh, is that is that Sri Yukteswar in there? I know he told Master not to read any commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, yeah, because he wanted him to have a clear mind for it. But yes, you can go into the Universal Library. I want to put this I'll, this point out too. I had one more thought in regard to this, and that's that's very close to it. When uh, Nitai was starting the first um, Education for Life school, it wasn't even called Education for Life then. It was just the Ananda School at Ananda Village some forty years ago. I guess we're celebrating the anniversary in the early part of July this year. And he was uh, famously seven children in a converted chicken coop. 
That was the beginning of the Living Wisdom schools. And uh, he'd been a school teacher. Um, interestingly, just talking about money. He'd been a school teacher before he came to Ananda, and that was his qualification for starting this. Um, he was paid $25 a month for doing the school. Or maybe he was paid nothing for doing the school and he earned $25 a month at the incense shop. I'm not quite sure where it was. But his income was $25 a month. His mother, a little concerned about her son and what he was doing, he said, well, I'm working and I'm earning 25. And she said, 25,000 a year, that's good. <laughs> and he just let it sit. He thought it was better to just let it sit because her opinion would have no effect on the facts. So let's just let it be. But anyway... Uh, he asked Swamiji at that time about studying Waldorf, studying Montessori and so on like that. Swami said, no. He said, just meditate. You know, draw it from inside. Master will guide you. He just don't bother to find out what other people are doing. Feel what we should be doing. And I, there may be a little more to that story, but that's in essence what he said. And we have to, we walk this razor's edge between presumption and um, affirmation and true attunement, and that's what we're always walking. Um, and on our spiritual path, and this is just something I, I mean I say to all of you, our authority is our discipleship. I mean, I'm a college dropout, so I don't have a lot of um, credentials of any kind. I mean, in, in fact, genuinely, I flunked out of college, but... Uh, it wasn't because I couldn't do it. I just chose not to. Um, but no external authority, no external study gives us the credibility that being disciples gives us. Now, I want to emphasize again that that's a razor's edge because if we're ignorant, we need to become educated. And if we presume that, that there's nothing that anybody can ever teach us, that's not going to help us. But at the same time, even as we study and seek out, you know, existing knowledge or existing understanding of things, we should always do it as disciples with the understanding that our credibility and our true wisdom comes from our attunement with our guru, not from this degree, that degree, this studying, that studying, this certificate, that certificate. And... My experience has been also from many, many years of this, there's just nothing like Master's teachings and there's nothing like Swamiji's articulation of them. And there's certainly nothing like attunement. However, attunement comes from deeply concentrated, uplifted energy. And sometimes people need more, more form in order to get their energy concentrated and uplifted but don't ever make the mistake that there's more authority in any other reality than in our own teachings as disciples. I'm not saying there's no uh, knowledge or authority anywhere on the planet, but as disciples, the more our reality comes from our discipleship to Master, the more genuinely wise and knowledgeable in every single field we will become because that's us, that's our power. That's our point of origin. And I'm, I'm distressed sometimes when people don't seem to understand that. You know, and think, oh, I need to bolster my credibility by this external, that external. You know, it's just absurd. 
I heard uh, Rinalini Mata trying to defend one of SRF's most egregious misrepresentations of Master's teachings, which is that after I am gone, the lessons will be the guru. And she actually put, made a, a recording, which it, it, I, I, I hope that God will forgive me. I believe she was lying absolutely straight out, whether she is consciously lying or has simply changed her memory, I don't know. But she actually quotes Master. She quotes herself as having a conversation with Master. Bear in mind, she was 13 years old when she came to Master. And he, he, by the time he, when he died, she was only 19. So this must have happened in her teen, early teens. She was, as she put it, contemplating the continuity of how things will continue after Master dies. And Master responded by saying, after I am gone, the lessons will be the guru. She, she quotes him as saying, and then she quotes him as saying, that's how the Sikhs do it. That there's no more gurus in the Sikh tradition, but the Guru Samhita, the scripture of the Sikhs, is considered to be the guru. Now, do you actually think that Master would refer to the Sikh tradition to justify his own statement? I mean, really, how ludicrous can you get? I mean, she, as far as I'm concerned, she just shot herself in the head when she said that. I mean, he, he was an avatar. I mean, and the, the Sikh, this is an ancient tradition with the Sikhs, and as Swamiji said, many Sikhs have gurus even. You know, because everybody in India has a guru. It's the, their tradition that the scripture is the guru, but a living master is fundamental to the spiritual path. But even more, can you just imagine master saying that? And, the, and also then in the commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible, both in the 40 years that it took SRF to publish them, they filled it with footnotes. They filled both books with footnotes. You know, Master has a few footnotes in Autobiography of a Yogi, it's true. But the Gita commentary ends up being supported by everybody else. Now think about the implications of that. And it's presented as if that was Master's own work, even though it might be obvious that they're not. And the 13th edition of the Autobiography is filled with footnotes. It's presented as if all those footnotes were added by Master, as if his own intuition had to be supported by other people's comments. You see how subtle that is? And how terrible? I mean, really terrible? This is thus, you know, the, the, the firm stand that we take in terms of Ananda's interpretation, expression of Master's teaching. But I'm not concerned, I'm using SRF as an example, but it's about us. You know, Don't allow yourself to think that as a disciple... Your strength lies in any other area. Gather, gather as you need, but even as you gather, always refer it back to your discipleship and let that be your strength. We have no idea the revolution that we have in, in, in our hands. You know, I've been doing this longer and have dealt with more people and have had the opportunity to perceive up close and personal what many so-called authorities actually know and don't know. And because it, there's, there's no pride in my saying it because it's just a simple fact. Nobody says it like Master or Swami. And for us, that's where our power comes from. And Master himself was capable of knowing everything. We can be just like him. You know, working at it in our own way, in the right way. Okay, does that make sense? So, so let's take a short break and then we have two more little points and then we're done. Okay. Does anyone have anything else to ask? Yes, Marilyn, good. Save me from going on. Uh-huh. 
I, I was um, been wondering for a while while you were talking about the um, kids and, and teaching kids and starting with attunement, but then I was thinking, well, maybe they're not in the right lifetime or something. Is that why you have to start with form? You know, that people have to learn one plus one is two instead of just learning it by attunement. That, um, But you know, okay, Living Wisdom School is different. And one of the things when Swamiji had to rewrite a new preface for the book on education for life for the Italian edition. He dealt with the question of the fact that so much of education is about making a living and the importance of being able to support yourself in life. It's a very important reality. In Master's book, How to Be Happy All the Time, a startlingly large amount of that book is about money because the lack of it or confusion about it is a prime source of unhappiness in people's lives. So Swami talked about it's not so much that children need specific skills to be able to earn money. They need to develop the magnetism to be able to attract money or the magnetism to be able to attract opportunity and the magnetism to be able to succeed at that opportunity. So part of success magnetism is having your feet solidly on the ground that you, you have the skills that you need. You cannot play the piano unless you practice. You know, it's just the way it works. You can't just... There's a a hilarious line in the Jane Austen movie of Pride and Prejudice where the very supercilious aunt says, oh yes, I would have been a great pianist myself if I had ever learned. She said. (laughs) And just the epitome of that. So absolutely, you have to discipline yourself in, in the material plane. Master says himself, in the astral world, you can write books just with your vibrations. But on the material plane, you have to write them down and you have to edit them and it's hard work. And Master talked about how, you know, he, he spoke of Whispers from Eternity as a book and that, you know, he, Divine Mother held his mind down and he had to work on that book harder. Whereas even in the Gita commentary and so on, he just put the thoughts out just in a steady stream of inspiration and left it to others to get it down to this plane. So both sides are true. At the same time, depending on where you are, in your own evolution, for example, just speaking of myself, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, I can never remember not being able to read. I never really learned to read. Everybody in my house could read, and I just knew how to read. I mean, I just walked into school, and I was, you know, already an advanced reader because it was part of my karma to be able to do that. Think about people who are so musical from the time they're born. Karen Gamow, she was born to two professional musicians, she started accompanying on the piano when she was in kindergarten. I mean, she was just so natural at it that she was commenting about how she's been doing this a long time. You know, she was good enough when she was five to just accompany their little choir on the piano. So, to a certain extent, you do reach the point where you don't need much training in form because you've done so much of it already that the intuition is just right there again and you know how to do it. And there's countless examples of that. But nonetheless, if you don't already have that ability, and even if you do, you have to still, because it's the nature of the material plane, we can't just do it by thought and energy. That's where it comes from, is the plane that we're on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that would mean that that Swamiji, even though he's writing this... Swamiji, even though he's writing these books and the thoughts are just coming to him, 
he still um, had to learn a language. He still had to have at least the ability to communicate to somebody else who would type if he didn't, if he couldn't type. Exactly. He had to. You have to obey the laws of the material plane. You can't skip them. And and and, and be able to think or present it in a logical exactly. sequence. So and he's worked very very hard. Mm-hmm. Sacrificed his physical health. Sacrificed his ease and comfort. You know. You have to. Um, everything in this world is the result of, of somebody's tapasya. Tapasya is the focused gathering of energy, which may look to people like an austerity or a denial of other realities, and it is. Nothing in this world is created without tapasya, without the gathering of energy somehow. And a, an advanced soul like Swami can do tapasya, like working out karma through his physical body, even. It's hard to, for us to, to communicate exactly what he's doing, but, but by the sacrifice, certain sacrifices on a subtle level, that's part of the tapasya that makes a non possible. He had terribly arthritic hips for more than 20 years before he got them replaced because literally he was carrying the founding of Ananda on his own body and only when it was well established did he go get hip surgery. He could have gotten it at any point, but he had to do the tapasya. When he was sick in the hotel and in the hospital in India, in 2003, when he first went there to found it, he was sick as soon as he got there. He was sick for months. Sitting in the hospital, and this Swami from Rishikesh, I don't even know who he was, comes in. Oh, Swamiji, the Swami says to Swami Kriyananda, I'm so sorry to see you unwell. Kriyananda replies, oh, don't worry about me. I'm just doing tapasya for the work here. You know, just like, it doesn't matter. This is just one of the ways I'm gathering energy. You gather energy by practicing your piano every day, by studying your your music by learning your science. It's tapasya that you're actually doing. But you do intelligent tapasya, not random, crazy tapasya. But you're gathering the force of energy. You're exercising willpower. You're cutting through the inertial force and making something happen. Is The body just can't handle it? Is that why the body gets sick? Well, most yogis don't get sick. I mean, Catholic saints get sick and suffer, Master said, because they don't have yoga. And so they don't know how to work with the energy in their body. And as the energy begins to accelerate and intensify, their body gets thrown around a bit. The kinks in the hose kind of throw the hose around until the the flow is there. That's one thing. Many yogis attain great advancement, you know, and can even be 150 years old and look like they're 40. Um, Or sometimes yogis use their bodies to work out their karma or the karma of their disciples or the karma of the mission they're trying to accomplish. I believe that's what Swamiji has done. He will not, except in rare unguarded moments, actually claim that. He he feels that's that's for God to decide. But my observation of him is that a great deal of karma that has nothing to do with him goes through his body. That's why his health is so just incomprehensible. You know, oh, Swami's dying. Oh, Swami's fine. Oh, oh yes, today he's dying again. Oh, yeah, he's fine. You know, it's just like, there's just no rhyme or reason to it from an objective medical point of view. It's something, it's been that way forever, for a long, long time. Yeah? Right? Two more. Um, We have to turn that off, otherwise we get an echo on the recording. Thank you. Physically speaking, I was impressed by Master, by Yogananda's posture. 
It was always firmly upright. Somehow it was evident to me that his consciousness was always centered both in the spine and at the point between the eyebrows. Isn't that an interesting comment? You know, just, and isn't that where everybody just kind of subtly trying not to make a big point of it, straightens their spine up a little bit here. <laughs> I'm putting both my feet on the ground, lifting my shoulders a little bit. But, but that just the fact that his body simply couldn't express in any other way. Because there were, again, there were no conflicting cross-currents of ego or likes and dislikes of the heart. So the only way that his body could express would, was, in, was in this straight arrow toward the infinite. For us, it's, I mean, and it's so often true, you'll, you'll realize you're not feeling all that well, and then you'll observe what your body is doing. You know, just um, fidgeting, twisted, bent over, whatever it might be, and you'll suddenly realize that you have assumed the posture of the mental state you have, and you don't like the mental state, and of course, the beginning of unraveling that is going back to wherever, whatever you would want to be expressing. Now, for Master, it was no affirmation. His body was incapable of assuming any other stance. But it's also just so interesting to think about the fact that his, his consciousness was always centered at the point between the eyebrows. For us, you know, it's, it's often the dichotomy of the energy sinking from the point between the eyebrows to the medulla and us actually living from the medulla, which is the point of self-concern, and what about me? And there's a, Swamiji has been fond of, of uh, repeating, that there's the book Charlotte's Web, and I can't now remember which character is it. It's, it's, it's the rat, whose phrase to Charlotte is, what's in it for me, Charlotte? <laughs> and it's just such a funny concept, and through the, you know, over the many years of Swamiji's life, certain things have become, become. Pardon me. Templeton. Yeah, the, the rat's name, Templeton, and uh, certain things have sort of become signature. And one of the parts of Ananda culture is what's in it for me, Charlotte. And and whenever your mind starts sinking back to you defining yourself and living from that ego position, then it it seems like a very reasonable question. Question. Well, what's in it for me? Where's my position in this? What am I going to get from this? But of course, when your consciousness is centered at the spiritual eye, there is no eye to be worried about. One of the first aphorisms that was given to me in my first spiritual book when I was 19 by Swami Vivekananda, don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. It seemed like such a strange juxtaposition of words, but I was wise enough I was, wiser than my, I was wiser than my intelligence. I don't know how else to say it. But somehow I got that there was truth in that. That, it, that self-realization is not the perfection of your egoic self. It's the transcendence of it. And it's, it's another one of those things where we get very confused. We keep thinking preoccupation with my egoic self, more and more determination to make it good, more and more intensity of disappointment when I goof up, that somehow that is the spiritually right attitude. I, I lived with that for so many years, and p- people all around me kept trying to draw me out of it, and I just, I just couldn't get it. I thought, but I'm trying so hard, and I'm so intense about being good, and I'm so upset about being bad. Isn't it obvious that I'm doing the right thing? And I never saw it as just this endless self-concern loop. And finally, the just the realization 
that the, well, I've, I've written this before, and this is the gospel according to Asha. Nobody's ever said this. It's my belief that we never actually on that level get any better. At least I say this to myself because, as I've said, it works for me. So when I once again do something that really, I can't imagine why I ever thought it was a good idea to do it, instead of being horrified and spending days or even weeks anguishing over it, I just think, well, what do you expect? You know, just like, it's, it's, you're always, on that level, you're always going to be a mess. Just don't even, don't live on that level. You know, just live on the level where you're happy with God. And just forget about what's going on in that little tiny vortex one calls oneself. Just, it's just a matter of moving your attention from the ego to the spiritual eye. Because when you're in the spiritual eye, and I I'm, I'm, would be presumptuous to claim that that's where I actually live, but when you, take, when you don't think about yourself, you feel fine. The only thing that makes it a horror story is when you're thinking about it. Because especially when you're torturing yourself over things that can't be changed, they don't even exist except in your own mind. That's the thing I finally got. Oh my gosh, this doesn't even exist. The only thing that still exists is the story I keep telling myself. You know, it's already happened. The energy is going out. It's being dissipated through the universe. The only place where it's still centered is in my own preoccupation with it. Don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. I began to learn that through service. That's one of the great powers of service. You get really busy thinking about what you can do for others. It just doesn't cross your mind. I was put, when I first went to Ananda Village, into the kitchen. And uh, I I entered the kitchen in July and I I knew nothing about cooking. I was a terrible cook. I was a food fanatic, and that's how I got in there, much to the increasing despair of the people I was cooking for. Um, But I was a food fanatic, so I went into the kitchen, and there was this competent woman who was in charge, and just before Spiritual Renew Week of that year, there was some family emergency, and in the middle of the night, she drove away and never came back. And so the whole, and I was the only, her only assistant, and the whole responsibility for the kitchen just fell on me. And, you know, I was dumb enough to think I could do it, so I just did, and plus there was no choice. And I became so busy, and I liked food. I mean, I liked kitchens, I liked cooking. I, wasn't, I, I was the fanatic, so I had a very peculiar sense of what I liked and didn't like, but um, I enjoyed the work. And, and it came down that, that I, with one assistant, one part-time assistant, cooked... Um, Three meals a day, six days a week. And on the seventh day, I drove to town and filled the truck up with supplies to do it all over again. And I loved it. I was so happy. And I was so busy. I was so preoccupied with my service that I stopped thinking about myself. And it was such a revelation. Like all of the difficulties that I had, I realized only existed if I paid attention to them. And I realized the difference between... um, Uh, self-realization and self-concern. And the phrase self-forgetfulness entered my awareness. Just self-forgetfulness. Seva will often do that for us. Service will often do it for us. And then we just lose ourselves in the flow of energy to others. And then you discover this one woman, bless her heart, this goes under missing the point. She went into the file called missing the point, which is one of Patanjali's um, aphorisms, dangers on the spiritual path, missing the point. This woman was a very dynamic person and she had the very good karma to get swept right up into Swami Kriyananda's world. 
And, you know, she had the opportunity to have satsang with him often. This was in the 70s, maybe. Could have been in the 80s. But after a while, she started refusing his invitations, you know, to join him and us for various things. Because, and I quote, when she spent too much time with him, she couldn't remember her problems. (laughs) And she was concerned that if she couldn't remember them, she would never solve them. Wow. You know. And try as we might, we could never unravel that for her and not long after she just went away. My, my, my. But it's true. If you spend too much time in an uplifted spiritual atmosphere, you won't remember what bothers you. And if you're persuaded that the only way you're going to get out of what bothers you is by concentrating on it all the time, okay, this all comes back to Master. He kept his spine straight and he kept his attention at the spiritual eye. You can't really do both of those and wallow in self-concern simultaneously. And every time you find yourself wallowing in self-concern, ask yourself, where is my consciousness? Where is my spine? And sometimes the very first thing you do is, that's why you, that people say, pull your socks up and stand up straight, lad. <laughs> you know, lift your chin, you know, just go on. Look people right in the eye. And all of those phrases, which can be overdone, actually, the older I get, the more truth I see in it. Master actually says, and this is, nobody understands this properly, or people freak when you hear this, when he says this. He said, don't coddle your children. He said, don't always feed them when they're hungry. <laughs> always put a sweater on them when they're cold. You know, let them become a little tough. And don't, don't give them the impression that every time they have any little desire, you have to rush over and, and solve it. Let them find out that they can discipline themselves. They can survive without getting what they want. I mean, child rearing has gone so far the other direction that, you know, we have, we have this whole attitude that if we don't respond instantly, then the child is going to be just have a broken spirit for the rest of his life. But we might look at the evidence and ask ourselves how well that's really working. You know, and at least it's, it's worth, inter- it's interesting to hear how Master said that. There was a, a little boy who lived in our community for years, um, Chaitanya. I mean, it's, he's uh, Erica's, one of Erica's peers. And he never wore shoes and he never wore a sweater. And even when it got really cold, his father said once, you know, at first I said, I wanted to tell him to put on his shoes, but then I realized he's perfectly comfortable <laughs> You know, why should I tell him that he needs to wear his shoes when he, when he knows that he doesn't? Just let him not wear them. What difference does it make? And, he, you know, his father was a school teacher and he was very astute about children. But you, there's just that thought that because the child himself is behaving in a way that is stronger than you might expect, rather than, you know, mitigating that, let him have it. That little boy, he would never go in the door of his house. He lived for a while in... A, the end apartment, the, the one that's by the manager's office, and he would get into the apartment by climbing up the tree, stretching from the tree onto the balcony, and then going in through the upstairs unit. And then later on, they moved across to a, an upstairs apartment where it was just the top, and he didn't have the whole thing anymore. So his father put a rope ladder down from the balcony. <laughs> because you know, it was just the child's way of, of functioning in the world. But you know, it's very... Always keep your attention at the spiritual eye. Don't feel that we have to just let ourselves sink to anything less than that. Well, and then the last point. Although the Master was very accepting of others as they were, when it came to their aspiration for perfection, he was uncompromising. In my own efforts to develop devotion, 
I had finally reached the point where I felt I had some cause for self-satisfaction. Master, however, was not satisfied. Soon after, he said to me, if you love yourself, how can you love God? You know? And once again, on the spiritual path, the rules are really, really different. You know, we're always looking for a little bit of ego gratification and we think that being always being told that everything is fine and that we're good and we're worthwhile. A great deal of so-called self-esteem training is just flattering children to think that they're better than they are. Um, Swamiji, I remember a friend of mine who was raising her son and did a very good job of raising him. You know, he brought her a painting, a little picture that he'd drawn. He was you know, eight or nine at that point. I was very interested. I watched the way the mother responded. Oh, that's very nice work. But you know, when I look at that, I really think you can do better than that. You know, she, she gave him credit, but in the fact of the matter was he could. And then he went back and he tried harder and he did better. You know, Swamiji has remarked sometimes that sometimes in the name of supporting their children, parents actually really just ruin them because they give them the impression that they have really accomplished something really good when in fact they haven't begun to apply themselves. You know, it's a, it's a, again, everything is a razor's edge. But it, it, Swamiji said that you know, most people couldn't stay with Master because when it came to perfection, he was uncompromising. He did not flatter. He didn't, you know, tell you everything was fine when everything was not fine. He looked at us and saw that we were going to be perfect and why should he tell us that it was okay before we got there? I mean, it takes a certain amount of concentration at the spiritual eye and a certain straight spine to go through that. Where did we start this conversation? How high is the mountaintop? We have to actually go by our own experience and be fully conscious of the fact that our experience is nothing compared to the experience that we will really eventually have. Moksha looks like Swami Kriyananda. Looks like Paramahansa Yogananda. It doesn't really look, with all due respect, like anybody else that I've seen. You know, at least, let me phrase it differently. People could be great saints that are manifesting in a very different way. But let's not get too pleased with our little tiny bit of whatever it is. We have a long way to go on this. Let's not forget our potential either. No, but let's, we have a long way to go on this. And this is a very, a very subtle, everything I've said tonight is all about the razor's edge. We are in the last few seconds of a 24-hour clock and at the same time we have a long way to go. Let's just give ourselves both realities. And really the truth of the matter is self-forgetfulness. Who cares where we are on the spiritual path? Somewhere in the, the commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, Swami actually says that. And it it was very interesting to me because I've had actual disputes with my own friends on this. You know, I'm going to be a Jeevan Mukta. I'm going to try for liberation in this life, people will say. And I say back, well, that doesn't really work for me. That makes me really nervous. Of course, I'm just talking about my own temperament. If If I think too much about what I could achieve, I end up feeling anxious. So it is not a fruitful spiritual attitude for me. But I, I was very heartened when I read in Swami's uh, essence of the Bhagavad Gita. He said, don't even think about it. Just love God, serve God. What would you do differently? That's, that's really the question. If you're not putting out your best effort now, why are you not putting out your best effort? Is there some sort of mythical idea that, oh, well, I'll get, you know, that I'll do it differently because? No, we do the best we can. That's what David said to me once when they, I 
dragged him to an astrological reading and afterwards we came out and he said to me, I was his reading, let's not waste money on this anymore, he said. (laughs) He said, I get up every morning, I do the best I can do. He said, I don't really care about anything else. And it was just, it just struck me so, so validly. You know, he's very male and he's very even tempered. You know, I'm a little, very female and a little freaked out easily. So sometimes I like a little information. It makes me feel better. That's just the way I can be. But nonetheless, it struck me very powerfully. I get up every morning and I do the best I can do. What would I do differently? Maybe it's an incentive, and for some of my friends it is an incentive, and Swamiji himself has said it, so I'm in no position to criticize. You know, aspire to be Jivan Mukta in this life. Don't think less than that. You know, aspire to see the spiritual eye, to go breathless in meditation. If that is a positive incentive for you, then by all means embrace it. But at the same time, what would you do differently? If you're not putting out... When people ask me sometimes, you know, how am I doing, what should I do? In my life, I ask them the question, are you working at 100% of your potential? Are you consciously, are you coasting? Or are you giving your life, in whatever form that your life may take, 100% of the best effort that you can muster every day? Bearing in mind that your 100% doesn't always look really that impressive. Because that's where people get confused. We're do- I'm doing my 100%, but my 100% is not as impressive as I want it to be And then, therefore, we get into this cycle of self-concern and self-abnegation and self-criticism. Oh, no, I'm not really trying. The the hardest thing to get here is, in fact, you are. (laughs) That is your 100%. But if you know that you're not, if you're seeking an easy easy birth, if you're looking for pleasure and ease, if you're consistently making selfish decisions, and ask somebody objective before you make the judgment. Because a lot of times people are so hard on themselves, they have no idea who they are. And you need somebody else to say, you know, you're a shining star, just don't worry about it. But still, on the question of perfection, he was uncompromising. And that's what you see in the lives of all the saints. In the, in the St. Bernadette of Lourdes, it was, it was a movie, but still it was accurate to her life. She, she was a girl, a young girl, who had a vision of the Virgin Mary in Lourdes and the magic, not the magic, the miraculous water flowed and it's healed thousands, millions of people by now. But when she was um, either ill as a young girl or maybe toward the end of her life, she was, she was so racked with remorse because of a certain unkindness she had expressed to her mother. You know, there's this, um, in, the, in the question of perfection, we have to be uncompromising with ourselves. We're never justified. Of course, once it's been done, we have to learn from it and put it behind us. But the level of perfection that the saints express is, is the picture that we have to strive for ourselves. And we can say, I'm pretty nice. Most of the time, I'm pretty good. But at the same time, this is, this is the balance point. We have to calmly and wonderfully embrace the fact that by the time we're on this path of self-realization, we're in the last few seconds of the 24-hour clock and then realize, wow, I've got a few seconds to go. And that that whatever I'm doing now, so much more is going to come to me. A perfect place to stand. And the Master will support us in our sincerity, but he'll never compromise with our potential. And he's, uh, thank God. Well, that's the story. 
of the 32 qualities of master. It was fun. That was good. That was very good. Okay. That's that. My pleasure. That was really fun. Yeah, it turned out to be just as much fun as I thought it would be. Okay, next week back to whatever it is, which I will find out. Spiritual warrior. Spiritual warrior. And I will open the notebook and if I don't know where I am, I'll call somebody else.